Pastor Nathan, and today we are concluding our study of the book of Revelation. Yeah, after 13 months and 47 individual messages, we have arrived at the end of the end, the final piece of the final chapter of the final book in the Bible. And you know what a blessing it has been to study the book of Revelation. It's one of the promises in chapter 1 that those that read this book are blessed. And I'm sure you have been blessed with this revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we're closing this study today, you know, I want you guys to just kind of reflect and ask yourself the question, how has this study affected you? How has this study um, affected your life? Specifically, when you think of your future as a believer, are you excited for what's to come, the promises that God has for those that are His? Are you full of hope? Are you full of joy? Are you full of anticipation? These are things that come from the blessing of reading and studying the book of Revelation. You know, as we've learned, there's, there's a lot to come in the future. There's a lot of bad to come in the future, but there is also a lot of good. This book has taught us that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It will fall upon this earth, will fall upon sin and sinners and those who've rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But it's also taught us that Jesus is coming. And so is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And that is so exciting to look forward to. Now, this truth the truths that are taught in this book, they can either excite you or they can cause you fear and worry. Because the truths taught in the book of Revelation beg the question, are you prepared? Are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? Now the Bible, although it's true history of past, present, and future, it reads sort of like a novel. It starts with an exciting opening where the characters are introduced and the villain's introduced and the hero is introduced, right? In Genesis, the next book we're going to start, we have the story of creation and there we're introduced to Adam and Eve and introduced to the serpent and introduced to the promised one who will come and crush his head. And then from there, as you study through the Bible, the plot unfolds and you have all the ups and downs and the twists and the mysteries and the intrigue. How's it going to end as we read through this story of God's Word? We think, will they obey God? Oh no, they don't. The curse enters in. Sin and death enters in. And then you proceed through chapter after chapter of Israel's disobedience. And then Israel's obedience. And then Israel's disobedience. And through it all, there's longing for the promise to come. And then we get to the New Testament. The Messiah arrives. He's here, but he dies. But he rises from the dead. But he's leaving. But he promises that he's coming back. And this is the story of Scripture. He will return one day. And so after his ascension, the rest of the Bible unfolds. The church is born, and his people watch and wait for his return. And then it all wraps up as we're given this revelation of Jesus Christ. The plot lines are resolved. The future is revealed to his people. And it's all a, a, a book-ended story, right? In Genesis 1, you have everything lost is restored. Paradise is lost. In Revelation, we have paradise regained, but it's different. It's better. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Revelation closes with God creating a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 1, God creates the sun and the moon. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's no need for the sun. There's no night because the Lamb is the light. Jesus is the light of glory for all eternity. Genesis 1, the seas are created. Revelation 21, there's no more sea. Genesis 3, the curse is announced. Revelation 22, there's no more curse. Genesis, man is driven from the tree of life in the paradise of God. In Revelation 21 and 22, Access to the tree of life is granted anew. In Genesis, we see sorrow and pain begin. In the end of Revelation, it tells us there is no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, for all of that is over. And so today, we come to the epilogue of the story. 
the epilogue at the end of this great story. If you read books, often you'll see at the conclusion of the story, when all the details are wrapped up, there is an epilogue. There is that, and happily ever after, and into the future, that wrap up to the thought, a final summary of what the story was telling us. And we're coming to that today, the final concluding remarks, the application, or the bigger question is, what now? After you study the book of Revelation and you get to the end of it, what now? How does it affect your life today? How do you live today? After the story is told, after history, after tribulation, the second coming, the millennial reign of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem created. We're at the end of the story where the king of kings now sits on the throne reigning forever and ever in eternity. And so what are the final words that we get in the book of Revelation? What is the last thought in this last book of the Bible that God wanted us to have? Well, Revelation ends by reminding us of the absolute certainty of the return of Jesus Christ. That not only is it coming, but it is coming soon. It reminds us of the absolute certainty of this future we've been studying and more importantly, the necessity of our response to these truths. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But first, we're going to worship God. We praise him for what he's done in our lives. We praise him for who he is. We praise him for what he is going to do. And we praise him for the future promise that is in store for his people. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We're so grateful, God, for who you are. We're grateful for your word, God. Genesis to Revelation, as it reveals to us who you are, it reveals to us who we are, it reveals to us the reality of our sinful condition and the solution that you provided by coming to this earth and clothing yourself in humanity, dying on the cross for our sin, raising from the dead that those who would put their faith and trust in you would also defeat the sting of death in their life not just physically, but eternally. God, your word teaches us how to live as your people in this church age, and it shares with us the future, Lord, of what is to come for those who trust in you and what is to come for those who don't. But Lord, as your people, we are encouraged by the hope of heaven. We are motivated by the hope of heaven, God. Lord, we long as your people to be with you in the light of your glory forever without any hindrance. And so, God, as we close this study of Revelation today, Lord, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, God, because really this closing epilogue of Revelation really asks the question, what now and what are we going to do with these truths? And so, Lord, may we be people today that hear your voice as your Spirit speaks to us, to be people that would leave here today changed, walking in obedience to your word, living the lives that you've, you've commanded us to live, but taught us how to live and exampled us, exampled for us how to live, that we would be people who shine the light of glory into this lost and dark world, God. That we would share the hope that is in you. God, the glimpse of it that we see in this world is but a glimpse of what is to come. And so, Lord, may we live as people anticipating your return, looking forward to your return, in eager expectation of your return and the time when we will be with you in eternity. But Lord, also motivated to be people who will tell everybody we possibly can about the hope that is in you today. But Lord, we want to worship you. We want to praise your name. And we know this is what we're going to be doing into eternity, God. And so Lord, be blessed. Be blessed as your people proclaim your name. We love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 22, concluding our study here of Revelation. We're going to be starting in verse 6. And so this, as I said in the intro, this is the epilogue to the conclusion of all things. And this epilogue begins this way. Verse 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. 
Now, the he he was referring to there is likely the angel that was introduced to us back in Revelation 21.9. If you remember there, or if you want to look back there, it was one of the seven angels who had held one of the seven bowls of judgment, those final seven bowls of judgment there. And it was that angel that said was the one introducing John to the vision of the new Jerusalem. And so it's likely it's that same angel. We don't know for sure, but some people are like, who's speaking here? I think it was that angel. And this angel said to John, these words are faithful and true. That is a summary statement of the entire book of Revelation. Everything from the very first verse of Revelation to the last verse of Revelation is summed up as faithful and true. What the angel is telling to John is, hey, John, all of this stuff you've seen and heard, it's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's true. It's accurate. John, you've seen some pretty wild stuff. You've heard some pretty wild things. John, you're not hallucinating. You didn't make this up. You're not on drugs. This isn't a bad dream. John, everything you have seen and heard is faithful and true. And it just makes sense that this angel would need to say that to John after everything because what we've studied through, it's amazing, startling, supernatural, unearthly stuff that John has got to see through this book of Revelation. And so, I mean, if you or I saw this, it, it might be easy. We might be tempted to go, oh, that was, that was just a dream. You know, I just, I had bad Taco Bell, right? It's, you know, I just, it, it was just a fantasy, you know, it was just some imagination that I was having, or as, as some do, and, and again, I, I disagree with some of this interpretation, people go, oh, this is all just purely symbolic allegory. And the angel is saying, John, what you've seen is faithful and true. Those words, faithful and true, he's, he's telling them it's, it's real. It's accurate, it's, it's not fake. It's not pretend. It's real. And so, essentially what this angel is telling John here at the end of this revelation is that, look, the Lord God that you know, John, as a, as a Jewish man who, who grew up in that and then who met Jesus and who believes he's the Messiah, that God who, who moved on the hearts of the Old Testament prophets, right? He says, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, have sent his angel. And so he's saying, John, that God who moved on the Old Testament prophets, who gave them words to speak and prophesied of things, is the same God who spoke to the New Testament writers. All those letters that you and, and your contemporaries, John, have written, it's the same God who delivered this vision to you, John. And so he's going, so, like, remember, and we have to remember some very important things when we study this revelation, right? That the God who predicted that Israel would be taken captive was faithful and true because they were. The God who predicted that their captivity would only last seven years, it wasn't symbolic and allegorical. They were taken captive for 70 years. The God who predicted that they would return to the land of Israel, well, they did, didn't they? The God who said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he was. That same God predicted that there will be a tribulation. There will be. That same God predicted that there will be an antichrist. There will be. That same God predicted a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. There will be. And that God who came in the flesh and died and rose again and predicted that he would return one day, he will. That is really what this is all about. This whole book, it's why it's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him. It's about his heart, his will, his character. It's about his return. And that is the one, of, one of the most real truths that has ever been. It is the foundation of, of, of our entire walk that we know him, that we believe in him, that we trust in him for salvation, and we believe he's coming back. 
It's not an allegory. It's not symbolic. It's faithful, and it's true. And so this angel goes on to, to speak to John, but in verse 7, we see now Jesus himself, the lamb, speaks to John and says, look, I am coming soon. Now, this is repeated again in verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. And it's repeated again in verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. Do you think he wants us to pay attention to that? <laughs> How many of you have ever had to repeat yourself to someone? Why do you do that? Because they're not listening, right? Those of you that had kids, got to repeat myself over and over, right? Sometimes it's spouses, sometimes it's friends, right? He repeats it three times. Jesus speaking, assuring John and assuring us of the certainty of his return. He's coming back, people. You know, five times in the New Testament, we were told that when Jesus comes back for his church, five times we're told this, that it's going to be like a thief coming in the night. What that phrase means is that when Jesus returns for his church, it's going to be unexpected. He's going to come unexpectedly. That's how a thief appears in the night, right? A thief, a robber, does not call you in advance and go, hey, I'm going to be there at two. He doesn't notify you of the timeline of when he's going to arrive. He expects you to be unaware of the timing of his arrival. And so when Jesus says here, I'm coming soon, and those five other places in the New Testament where it says he's going to come like a thief in the night, what does that mean? Because it's easy for people to read soon and go, well, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. What does he mean by soon, right? We have to understand that that word soon in the original language, it means suddenly. Look, I will come suddenly. The word in the original Greek is not a relation to when, but it's speaking of how he will come. So basically what Jesus is saying when he says, look, I'm coming soon, he goes, when I come, whenever that is, it'll be suddenly. It'll be like in a flash. It'll be quick. And that lines up with what the church is told over and over and over throughout the New Testament. What are we told? Be ready because he will come suddenly. He will come when you're not expecting it. Yes, we have signs, right? The, the, the disciples were like, hey, how are we going to know when you're coming? And he goes, well, these are the types of things that are going to be happening in the earth. But no one knows the day or the hour. And so we have parables and we have stories about being ready for his coming. Because when he comes, it's going to come suddenly. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out thing. The picture of the New Testament churches that we see throughout the New Testament is that they lived in expectation that Jesus could return any moment. That's how they lived. He, they lived in the way of going, look, he could come now. He could come tomorrow. He could come the next day. We don't know, so we need to be ready. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul was teaching the Corinthians about, hey, while you're here now, this is how to use the spiritual gifts God's given you. And these are some of the things we're going to be talking about at the men's conference. But he says that while you're using your gifts, use them as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word revelation means revealing. It means revealing. So while you are actively waiting for the return of Jesus, Paul is then like, this is how you conduct yourselves with the gifts of the Spirit, right? At the very end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, verse 22, the very close of his letter, he closes it this way, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, O Lord, come. That phrase, O Lord, come, is um, in the original language, maranatha. You may have heard that. It's one of those Christian words that nobody really knows what it means, and it's not used a whole lot anymore. But early in the Calvary Chapel days, the, they had an entire music division that Chuck Smith put together called Maranatha Music, right? And it was where a lot of the, the early Calvary Chapel worship songs came from. Maranatha. What does Maranatha mean? Oh, Lord, come. It was, a, it was a greeting that the early Christians used to say to each other when they would greet each other, right? Like today, I go, sup, dude? Okay, when we leave, we'll go, see you later, right? We have our phrases we say when we greet people, whether it's showing up or leaving. Well, the phrase in the early church was Maranatha. When they would show up, they'd go, Maranatha. When they'd leave, they'd go, Maranatha. What were they saying to each other? Every time they said hello and goodbye, they were saying, 
the Lord's coming soon. The Lord's coming soon. It was on the forefront of their thinking. It was on the forefront of their mind. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I believe that's talking about the tribulation time, the wrath of God that is going to come upon the earth as we've studied through Revelation. But the earlier church was eagerly waiting for Jesus to come to rescue them from the coming wrath. Jude verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So you got these verses, and there's many others in the New Testament that show us that the church expected Jesus to return at any moment. And then, of course, you have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul's talking about the rapture of the church. And he goes through and he says this phrase that we who are alive at his coming will be caught up in the air, right? Now, in other words, Paul is saying that when Jesus Christ returns, as a thief in the night, unexpectedly, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that there's going to be some of us who are still alive when that happens. Some of us will still be living when that happens. We see that. So any natural reading of the New Testament, I believe if you just read it naturally without trying to start with a premise and force it to match what you think it should say, just read it naturally, it's clear to see that the early Christians believed that Jesus could return at any moment. And Paul, in his teachings over and over, said, church, live in that expectancy. Go about your daily lives in that expectancy that Jesus could return any moment. And then now at the very end of Revelation, the epilogue of all things, what do we see Jesus saying? I am coming soon. I am coming suddenly. Now, sure, there's a... A, a point of reference to time and that idea of soon, right? Um, we understand the Bible tells us that a thousand days or a thousand years is a day to the Lord, right? So for us, we're like, it's been two thousand years, and into the Lord, He's like two days, right? So, um, but the focus is is on the how He's going to come, and and that's why I believe in a in a pre-tribulation rapture. Right? I believe it fits the layout of Revelation. I believe Revelation 119, that's the very um, outline of the book. But I believe that throughout Scripture, what we see here, especially in this concept of he's coming as a thief, right? A thief doesn't say, here's a very detailed list of specific things that have to happen right before I come back. Here, uh, I don't know, let me give you a seven-year detailed timeline before I return. That's not how a thief comes. A thief comes unexpectedly. And that's why I think the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. Now, it's telling us that the prophets spoke of this. We just looked at the early church anticipated this. But really, the what now is so should we. This is how we should live as Christians in this world today. In expectation of his return. Paul's letters speak of the return of the Lord 50 times. 50 times. It was an important topic. So that bears the question that why isn't it at the forefront of our minds more often? Maybe it is. For some of you, maybe it isn't. We get caught up in life. We get caught up in work. We get caught up in business and relationships and paying bills. And, you know, we get caught up in in things. And these are all real things that we're all really experiencing. We have our ups. We have our downs. We have our good moments, our bad moments. But above all of that is this expectancy that we're called to live in that Jesus could return right now. Why don't we do that? Why do we find ourselves sometimes living as if the return of Jesus is a later thing? Why? Well, I believe it's because the devil does not want us to live with that kind of urgency and expectancy. The devil doesn't want us to live with that expectancy that the Bible encourages because the moment we take hold of that truth, that we could be raptured in the very next moment, everything this world has to offer us loses its luster. If we internalize, and when we internalize, and I know it's a process that we keep working towards to internalize, Jesus could come at the next moment. Everything this world has is kind of like, well, does it really matter? Because if, if, if Jesus takes me out of this world in five minutes, does it really matter? 
Now, yes, Jesus says, I'm coming, and until I come, be wise, be a good steward, right? <laughs> we got all that teaching. But those things are secondary to the reality that Jesus might come back right now. And so, we've opened this with, with this idea that these words are faithful and true, that Jesus is coming soon, that's trustworthy, it's accurate. And so, what should our response be? And that's what I believe the rest of this epilogue is about. We look in verse 7 again. It says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So our response to the fact that Jesus is coming soon should be one of obedience. That's what it means there, to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, God didn't give us this book of Revelation specifically just to feed our curiosity about the future. Right? It's not something just to go, oh, that's really fun. It's not given to us so we could all work and build escalators eschatological timelines and make cool posters. That's all fun, and that's all good stuff, but that's not why we have this book. He gave us the revelation of Jesus Christ that we would learn today to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. What that means is that as a church today, we should receive and apply the instructions to the churches that we find in chapters 2 and 3. That means that we should heed and respond to the warnings of what's to come in chapters 6 through 19, to know that that's what's in the future. And so make sure you are right with Jesus here and now today. We should live in light of his return, in the hope of the promise of the coming millennial and the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth, and all of it should be applied to our life in the present and translate into an obedient walk. That's the idea here. That's what keeping the words of the prophecy of this book means. For those of you that like to take notes, if you want to underline or highlight or whatever that word keeps, this is what it means. Persist in obedience. Persist in obedience. That means don't stop being obedient. Persist in obedience. And when we do that, we are blessed. Blessed is the one. We are blessed. That word means, oh, how happy. Right? We find the true joy of the Lord when we persist in obedience to his, his, his way, his will, his everything. You know, I've often said, and I was talking to someone the other day, it's like everything would be great if everybody just did what God says to do in every case. Right? Wouldn't life be so much easier if everybody just did everything God's way? Every husband was godly, every wife was godly, every child was godly, every boss was godly, every employee was godly. There was no lying, no stealing, no cheating, no selfishness. Wouldn't life be wonderful? You know what that's called? Heaven. That's our hope. But not here because we're still living in a fallen sinful world. Now, prophecy used the way God intended should purify us. What I mean by that is is when we're about to do something, say something, make a decision, and we're not sure if it's pleasing to God or not. Prophecy especially the book of Revelation, should make us think things like, well, if Jesus returns while I'm doing that, maybe I shouldn't do that. If you think, oh, I wouldn't want Jesus to catch me saying this, doing this, looking at this, watching this. Jesus wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want Jesus to catch me treating my spouse this way, treating my kids this way. I wouldn't want Jesus catching me being uh, a, a bad steward with the resources he's given me of my time or my money or my, or my talent, right? It, if, if, if it's like, oh, no, I wouldn't want Jesus to catch me, then you shouldn't be doing it. It's pretty simple. It's pretty clear, and that's how prophecy is supposed to work in this life. In fact, this is what John, the same author of Revelation, wrote about in 1 John chapter 3. He said this in chapter 3 of 1 John verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope of Jesus' return, the hope that it could be any moment, is a factor in purifying yourself, especially if you apply it to the, hmm, do I want Jesus to catch me doing that? And it works both ways. Would I want Jesus catching me giving this gospel tract to somebody? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'd love him to catch me doing that. 
reading my Bible, worshiping him, talking to somebody, glorifying his name, yeah, I'd love Jesus to catch me doing that. Then, then, then do that. Then do that. Peter, in his writings, he talked about the elements will burn and dissolve one day. And then he says, so it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God. Knowing that he's going to return, knowing that all things are going to be judged, knowing that, he goes, you know then what type of people you should be. And what we've read in Revelation, it really should change the way we live. It should make us more eternal in our choices. And again, I ask the question, how has this study changed you? How has this study changed your, your life, your marriage, your singleness? How has it changed your family, your business, your friends? How has it changed your walk? That's the question to ask. And if tribulation is going to be as bad as described and heaven is going to be as great as described, it should affect us. So verse 8, now John here pipes in, I, John... And the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So the first response to the truth that Jesus is coming is obedience. We should walk in obedience. The second response should be one of worship. It should be one of worship. Now, John reaffirms the truth and the faithfulness of the word here, right? He, he affirms it by his eyewitness account. He affirms it by his ear witness account. He says, I saw and heard. And then we see him fall down to worship at the feet of the angel. Um, some people go back and forth and go, he was worshiping the angel, and that's what specifically what he gets rebuked for. Other people go, no, he just fell down in worship there, but he was really trying to worship God, but the angel's like, no, it looks like you're worshiping me, and, and um, he fell down at the feet of the angel to worship, and the angel said, don't do that. So to me, I read this, that he was trying to either like worship the angel in some way or the angel as God's representative or he was just so overwhelmed by the moment that he had to just fall down and worship the, the, the thing that was representing God before him. It's, it's, it's unclear, but this is the second time John has done this. This is the second time he's been overwhelmed by everything he's seeing and hearing and he falls in worship before an angel or before the representative of God. The first time it was when he was uh, told by the angel, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he fell, f- fell down in that truth. And the angel's like, get up, dude. You know better than that. Don't worship me. And again, here we see the angel say, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you. Right? The Bible tells us that we were made a little lower than the angel's. But at the end of all things, we're going to be sitting as co-heirs with Christ. But the point is, is not who's what. The angel says, look, I'm, I'm a fellow servant with you. Like God is God and we are not. All who keep the word of his book, we're all in the same level of serving God. So worship him. Worship him alone. And, and it's just this picture, again, being reminded that no created being or created thing is ever to be worshipped. Only God, the creator of all things, is to be worshipped in our lives. And that means given our attention and given our service and given priority and given just our all, right? But in the face of all that's going on in the world today and in humanity and the sin and the wickedness we see, when you hear about the return of Jesus Christ and you, you, you read about the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we read about his victory over all the enemies of the earth and over sin and over death and, and over all of it forever, really, how can we not fall in worship of who he is and what he's done? Really, that's the response that should be welled up within us. It's one of the reasons why we, we start our service with, with worship, right? I give an introduction and stuff, but that's really for YouTube. <laughs> People go to a YouTube video. They want to know what the video is about in the first five seconds. And so that's one of the reasons why we do the intro here. But it's also to let everybody know this is what we're going to be studying today. But first, let's worship. Let's worship God. And it's not just to like, okay, well, we got to do that so that the study's good. Like if we don't worship, it'll be terrible. And well, I got to get my headspace in the right spot and all that. You know, that's an element to it. But we worship God because he deserves worship, period. And so if we did the worship set in the beginning of service or we did the whole thing at the end of service, it doesn't matter. 
If we stopped right in the middle right now and I said, worship team, come up and do another 30 minutes of song. Praise God. I'm not going to do that to you guys, I promise. But one day maybe, I don't know. Well, um, but it doesn't matter when and how. The purpose is just to worship God for who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, right? That's why it's not something you just do on Sunday. It's something you do all the time. It's a habit. It's something that should be a part of our lives. And so we worship. Now, we praise. We praise God that all evil and sin and selfishness will one day be done away with, right? Praise God that one day righteousness and what is good and and everything that is pure and right and noble and lovely will be the description of everything everywhere. Praise God for that. Praise God that he saved us and cleansed us with his blood and has promised us the hope of heaven, those who trust in him. And worship should never be a duty or an exercise or an obligation. It should should always be looked at as an opportunity, a privilege that we have to worship God. And then here in Revelation, it's just this picture that this, this is God. This is Jesus Christ. This is God's plan that we have studied. This is God's plan that, 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 that he put together, that he's prepared for you and me. So verse 10. It says, Then he said to me, Don't seal up the words of this prophecy or the prophecy of this book because the time is near. So our first response to the truth that Jesus is returning and is returning soon and will return suddenly is obedience. The second one is worship. The third one here is witness, proclamation, right? John, the angel says, the message that you have been given, this vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ, don't hide it. Don't seal it up. Instead, proclaim it. Share it. Tell it to people, the truth of the gospel and salvation and judgment to come and heaven and hell. That's a message that is meant to go out to all people. Yes, it motivates us. Yes, it's for us. But it's a message that we're called to take out and deliver. He says, don't seal it up. Don't keep it to yourself. It's not a private, personal thing. Right? That was how my parents kind of grew up. Oh, you, you, two things you don't talk about. Politics and religion. Right? Faith is a private thing. Faith is a personal thing. You keep that to yourself. Well, that's unbiblical. That's unbiblical. Now, yeah, we're not called to go out and be obnoxious jerks, which some are, and that's unfortunate, right? But we're called to go out in love and compassion and obedience and boldness and to let people know that God is real. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He died for you. He loves you. He is the answer to every problem. He is the solution to to every challenge. And he is the hope for everyone's future. That is Jesus. Don't seal it up. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing. It's a corporate thing because salvation is for all because all need salvation. So don't seal it up. And much of what we read in Revelation, specifically the tribulation, is, is, is meant to, to move us to warn people about the judgment to come. Now, for each of us individually, the question is then, is this book going to remain sealed in your life, or is it going to be open? As you leave today, guess what? You are heading out into your mission field. When you leave church today, you are hereby ordained as missionaries. All right, the sound, that's what made it official, okay? (laughs) You are ordained as missionaries in your community, in your family, in your friend and social groups. That is the reality. You are leaving boot camp, trained, equipped, readied for spiritual battle. And so don't keep the words of this book. Don't keep the words of the gospel truth sealed in any way. That's why we have an evangelism ministry that does a lot of training every Thursday night. It's training. It's, it's teaching you how to evangelize 
so that you could then go out and evangelize. Our team hosts trips almost every weekend somewhere to go hand out tracts and to talk to people. And if you can't do those trips, the intent is that you're trained and equipped to do it on your own at work, in your life, wherever you may be. So verse 11, let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy still be holy. The idea here is coming off of the idea of not sealing up the, the words, right? The idea here is, is, is as you go out and as you share the truth and as you um, uh, just be a witness of the gospel truth and everything that this book in particular is teaching and warning, the idea is that we're not responsible for the response of others. You're just responsible for delivering the message. Okay, understand that. You are not responsible for the response of others. A person who hears the truth and continues to reject it and say no to it and they're just going to keep doing wrong and living sinfully despite all of the warnings, guess what? The Bible teaches that God will honor their free, free will choice. God will honor that. Now, what that means is that they will come under his judgment. But God doesn't force anybody to be saved. It's the individual's decision. So none of us are responsible for any individual's decision. But we are responsible for delivering the message. And when it says there that the unrighteous will go on in unrighteousness, right? And then it uses the word they will still be. There are some scholars that say that phrase go on and still be should actually be translated more. So it should read, let the unrighteous be more unrighteous. Let the filthy be more filthy. Conversely, let those that pursue godliness be more godly, right? The idea is that those that want to continue in sin will persist in sin and will continually become more sinful. But judgment will come. That's the warning. But those who trust in God and pursue him will become more godly. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He does that in our lives. And each is responsible individually for their response to the gospel. And since Jesus is coming suddenly, since Jesus is coming like a thief, the idea is that there's not going to be time for change when he comes. Right? Some live that way. I'll get my life right tomorrow. After all, Jesus isn't coming till next week. Right? Some of us think that like, we'll have time you know, ba -ba -ba, the trumpet sounds, Jesus is in the air. We're like, oh, wow, but he's, he's over Florida. Okay, cool, I got 30 seconds. Mm, kumbaya, you know. And no, <laughs> it's not going to be like that. When he arrives, it's time. Verse 12, he says again, look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. So our first response, obedience. Our second response, worship. Our third response, witness. Our next response to the fact that Jesus is coming is to run the race to win the prize. That's what Paul wrote about, right? Jesus is speaking here, and he says, my reward is with me. That word reward literally means recognition by God for the moral quality of our actions. The reward that God has for us is recognition of the moral quality of how you lived. Were you living godly or were you living sinfully? He says, my reward is with me to repay. That word repay means recompense. It means an earned reward or what we would call a prize. What is the prize? God recognizing you. You see, in Philippians 3.14, it says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, you might think, well, heaven is a reward, and heaven is a part of the reward, right? We could go to heaven, but that's not all of it. We understand that we're not saved by our works, but we are recognized by God. We are celebrated by God for the life we live for him, and that prize, that prize that is being talked about here is to stand before the holy, perfect God Almighty, to stand before Jesus Christ in all his glory and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. And in our sinful state, I know some of us go, that's it? I thought I was getting a mansion made out of gold. 
and we think that's going to mean something there, the streets are made out of gold. It's asphalt. The reward is to stand before the holy, perfect creator and have him look at you and go, good job. You lived for me. You glorified my name. You obeyed me. You strove to do it. Yeah, you weren't perfect. That's why I died for you. My blood covered it all, but I saw you. I saw your intention. I saw that your, your, the goal of your life was to glorify God, and good job. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, Jesus is the one that said, store up your treasures in heaven. We're going to be talking about this in our giving thing, but guess what? Now is the time to save for retirement. <laughs> Not later. Our retirement, our eternity in heaven, now is the time to store up the treasures for that. And it's those good works, that obedience we live for the Lord. We're saved. We're going to heaven. But there's a reward that is called into this, and it's that recognition of God. And so, verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are just three ways of Jesus referring to himself as the everything. Right, the Alpha and Omega, those, that's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so when, in the Greek language of the ancient times, when you refer to the Alpha and the Omega, since it was the beginning letter and the last letter of the alphabet, it was an idea of saying everything. It was an idea of referencing the totality of things, right? And so this was applied to God, incidentally, in Revelation verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8, and 21, verse 6. It was applied to God Almighty. Jesus is here applying it to himself. What does that tell us? Jesus is God. He's not a God. He's God. Then he says the first and the last in the beginning and the end. This is just, again, Jesus tying himself to God Almighty because in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, this is God Almighty speaking. He says, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. And then Jesus Christ, the Lamb, says, I am the first and the last. Again, Jesus is God. And so the idea of him identifying himself this way is although we will be rewarded in heaven, the motivation to obey God, to, to be and do what is right, to be the people he's calling us to be, the motivation to be ready and prepared for his return is Jesus. It's who he is. It's not the prize in that sense. It's him. He is the ultimate prize to be with him in perfection. Everything is about Jesus. Honoring him, glorifying him, pleasing him, praising him, right? Get this, understand this, and the things of the world will lose their luster. It becomes easier to trust. When you get it, it's all about him. It becomes easier to, to, to give of time and money because it's all his anyways. It gets easier to step in faith when it doesn't make sense. I don't understand, but it's all for him. Jesus is the beginning and the middle and the end of every Christian. So choose to live that way. That's the idea here. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That phrase, wash your robes, it's a euphemistic way to refer to being cleansed from sin, right? We see multiple times in Revelation and other places where the idea of being clothed in white robes is a picture of purity. It's a picture of righteousness. It's a picture of being cleansed by the blood of Christ and being cleansed of all sin, now, we know that faith and trust in the atoning work of Jesus is what saves us. And so he goes, blessed are those who are cleansed from their sin that they may have the right to the tree of life. That word right also means they may have the authority to access it. Um, they have the right and the authority to eternal life in heaven. It's, it's the idea of having proper clearance, right? You have the credentials to enter you have the right and authority. And so we previously mentioned in our study of the New Jerusalem that when we enter the gates of the New Jerusalem, each one of the 12 gates are one huge pearl, right? We talked about that in a previous study where a pearl is, is a thing of beauty created through the suffering of the flesh. It's the only precious gem that does that. And so, again, we see here that, that our salvation, it's a thing of beauty created through our trust in the suffering death of Jesus Christ, and that's how we enter into God's glory. 
Now verse 15 there, when it says outside are the dogs, and it's not suggesting that in heaven there are unsaved people outside Jerusalem knocking on the gates. It's rather a warning for the readers of this revelation today. It's a warning to all those who have rejected Jesus Christ today that stand unsaved and unwashed and they have no right to eternal life, no right to the entrance into heaven. It's a warning to them. And some people will look at this and go, oh, hey, look, dogs are in heaven. That's not what it's getting at, right? And I don't have time to get into a whole thing. (laughs) Is my dog going to be in heaven with me? Talk to me after if you want to talk about that, okay? Um, But dogs was an Old Testament way. uh, In the Old Testament, dogs were equated with workers of evil. So it's referring to those workers of evil, those unclean scavengers is the idea here. And so verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so it's with these solemn words that Jesus himself authenticates the entire book of Revelation. He authenticates everything that's written here within, regardless of how fantastic it is, regardless of how unbelievable it seems, regardless of how too good to, true, too good to be true some of it may seem, he says it's all faithful and true. It's right, it's trustworthy, it's accurate. And he authenticates it by his messianic titles here. He says, I am the root and descendant of David. That's one of the things that was, that was proof of the Messiah, right? It was written about in David. Jesus mentioned it in the Gospels. He's the root of David, meaning that he is um, the, the creator of David, right? Jesus created David, and then he says, I'm also the descendant of David. And that was a part of the whole picture that Jesus is God, right? But him being born of the lineage of David was claimed a kingship, was the legal proof that he was the king that was promised to sit on the throne of all mankind, right? That was the idea there. And then when he says, I'm the bright morning star, uh, that was another title used throughout the Old Testament for the Messiah, the promised Savior and ruler of all things, the one who would bring light to all humanity. And so Jesus is authenticating this letter by his titles, by saying, I am the Messiah, right? I am the promised one to come. Verse 17, both the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I love how it's saying the spirit and the bride here because that speaks of the work we're called to today and how that work is accomplished today. You know, the bride is often a reference to the church, right? Ephesians chapter 5, this whole picture of a husband and a wife, it says that the bride is the picture um, of, of the church. We are the bride of Christ, In John chapter 16, verse 8, it tells us that the Holy Spirit has a ministry in the world. And that ministry in the world comes through the church, through his people, to declare Jesus Christ and to point to Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly interestingly enough, verse 16 is the first time the word church is used in Revelation since chapters 2 and 3. And it's one of the reasons why I believe the church is not present during the tribulation. We're not there we see that the saints do return with him during the millennial kingdom. And then we see here in eternity that is the church, the bride of Christ, the redeemed, the believers that are with Jesus forever. But he is what it's all about. It's the invitation here. It's the clarion call going out here from the spirit and the bride, the church that is filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped and enabled and gifted to go out and preach the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. This is the call. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're thirsty for spiritual refreshment, come. If your desire is for salvation, if you desire to be forgiven of your sins, if you desire eternal life to be saved from the wrath wrath to come, come to Jesus. If you want to be washed clean, forgiven, and enabled, and empowered to live a holy and a righteous life now, come to Jesus. That's the clarion call here at the end of this letter. Here's what it's all about, has always been about, and will always be about. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus for healing. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus. 
He is the one that the church proclaims through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that saves. There is no other name by which man will be saved, no other name by which we are saved, but the name of Jesus. It is only and ever Jesus. Which explains the closing warning here. Look at verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. Now, I don't believe this is talking about losing your salvation per se. The idea of this warning at the end of this book is what I just said. This revelation was about who? Jesus Christ. Scripture is about who? Jesus Christ. It's about God and who he is. It's about God coming to this earth as the Son. It's about God the Spirit dwelling within each one of us after the Son ascended back to the right hand of the Father. All of that is about who he is and what he did. What he did was something only he could do. Only Jesus could die for the sins of all mankind because Jesus is God. He is the only perfect atoning sacrifice. Right? It's all about him. And so commentators aren't sure who's speaking here. Some think it's John speaking. Some think it's an angel. Some think it's Jesus. But if you have a Bible that has red letters in it, you'll notice it's not in red letters, right? That's because the interpreters there didn't think it was Jesus speaking. Um, I don't think it matters. But you don't mess with the Word of God. That's the idea here. You don't mess with the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God tells us who Jesus is. It tells us the story of God the Son coming to this earth, born as a man, living as a man, that we may know the unknowable, and that he may understand us, and we would know that he understands us in every way. The Word of God tells us about our sinful condition. It tells us of our hopeless situation before the holiness of our Creator. And it tells us of the judgment to come upon sin and sinners because of his holy justice. And then it tells us how he solved the problem of our sin for us because he loves us. Revelation is about Jesus Christ. God Almighty, come in the flesh to die for you. So is the rest of Scripture. And the price for tampering with God's Word, the price for altering it, changing it, the price for rewriting it so that it says something different about who Jesus is, that he's just an angel, that he's the brother of uh, Michael the archangel, that he's the brother of Lucifer, that he, uh, he is Michael the archangel, that's one of them, that he's just a God, that he was just a good man, but he wasn't God. Any reinterpretation, any rewriting of that, and then how that affects who we are before him and how we're saved and how we get the promise and the hope of heaven, all of that, it's a very, very high price. And God takes it deadly serious because his word teaches us the truth about who he is. Tampering that truth tampers with everything. And God takes that very seriously. There is no truth more important than who Jesus is and what he did for us and what that means for us. So, the book closes here in verses 20 and 21. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That is definitely Jesus. John closes here with amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Jesus is coming. And it will be sudden. It may be soon on our calendar. We don't know. Could be another thousand years. But when it happens, it'll be sudden. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our hope. And so I close this letter with a question Do you know him? as your Lord and Savior. Is he your Lord and Savior? Has he washed you clean of all of your sin by the blood of his sacrifice? He does that through your faith and your trust 
in him, yielding your life to him, turning your life over to him, saying, God, I'm going to live obedient to you. Help me do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you done that? You'll notice earlier it didn't say, whoever understands all doctrine and theology, come and take of the water of life. It didn't say, whoever feels they are worthy, come and take of the water of life. It doesn't say, whoever feels like they're able to live as a Christian, then come and take the water of life. It says, whoever is thirsty. Whoever is thirsty. That's a way the Bible talks about recognizing your spiritual lack. Recognizing that, that without him, you're spiritually dead. Recognizing that without him, if you die in your sins, it'll be judgment because God is holy and you are a sinner. That's what thirsty means. But then it says, whoever desires. Whoever desires to change. Whoever desires to be changed. Do you desire to be washed clean of your sin? Do you desire to, to have the hope of heaven? Do you desire to have a new heart, a new spirit that, that lives for what is good and righteous? Do you desire these things? Then come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. Receive salvation. Receive an, a new life. Be born again. A new heart. And then to know that when he returns, that he's coming for you to take you to heaven. If this is your desire, then you are freely invited to come to him. Freely. That's the truth of the gospel. If you are willing, he will receive you. There is no barrier between you and Jesus except maybe your own stubborn will. But there's no barrier that God has put up. So let it go. Receive Jesus Christ, receive salvation, take freely of the water of life, and be saved today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Jesus is either going to return, or you will pass away in this life. Either way, one day you will suddenly be in his presence. And the only thing that matters in that moment is whether you know him as your Lord and Savior or you don't. And if you don't, the promise of God's word is that you will be judged in your sin. And there is nothing you can do to pay the price for the sin that you've committed except apply the blood of Jesus Christ who died to forgive you of all of it. Let's pray. Father, we trust you, God, so much. If you're in this room today, while we're praying, heads bowed and eyes closed, or if you're watching online, and God has been speaking to you, and you know you need to come to Jesus today. You know you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and maybe you've been resisting it. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while, and God's been tapping on your shoulder, and you've been saying, no, not yet, not yet. But today, God has spoken to your heart and revealed to you that he is coming he is coming soon, and it will be a sudden return. And he has spoken to you about your desperate need to be ready, to be clothed in a washed white robe of righteousness granted to you by your creator, washed clean by his shed blood on the cross as he atoned and paid the price for all of your sin. And if today you realize, I want that, I need that, I desire that, I'm thirsty for that, I just want you to pray with me right now, whether you're here in our room or online, and say, Lord, I desire to be saved. Give me a new heart. Cleanse me from all of my sin. I'm thirsty to be spiritually refreshed. I desire, Lord, to give up my sins. I desire to yield my life to you I desire to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. I desire to believe, and I desire to obey. But God, I know I have no strength to do this on my own. So please fill me with the Holy Spirit. I can't do it on my own, Lord. 
but I desire to do it. Give me the power to do so. Save my soul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer today, we want to just celebrate with you and help you on this relationship you've just begun with God. And we have these things called New Believers Packets or these little white envelopes here at the front or as you go out the back, you can ask one of the elders out there, hey, I I got saved today, (laughs) I need a New Believers Pack. And it's just a collection of resources to help you now on this relationship. But I will tell you this, that now that you know Jesus Christ, your, your life's gonna be different. Temptation's still gonna come and you're still gonna struggle and that's why you need the church around you. The church to help hold you Uh, hold you accountable to your decision and to help hold your arms up and to pray for you and to strengthen you. To get into your Bible, I encourage you, read the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have a card in here to connect you to a Bible app and just read and say, God, speak to me. He'll do that. Listen to worship music. We got worship playlists in this New Believers Pack for you so you could just praise God for who he is. And whether you plug in here at Hosanna as your church or it's somewhere else God leads you to, Make sure it's a place that teaches the word of God and lifts the name of Jesus high that you would know him more and more and be ready to be blessed because knowing Jesus is the greatest blessing of all. And for the rest of us, I hope this study of Revelation has been a blessing to you. I hope it's caused your walk to be better. I hope it's brought you closer to Jesus Christ because he is our everything. And let's be people who live lives and commit to living lives of obedience to him not expecting to be perfect, but walking in the spirit that we would sin less and glorify him more. And to be people who tell others around us that don't yet know him about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.